morning, folks. If we haven't met, uh, my name's Matthew. I'm the associate pastor here, and I'm very glad you're here on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, dads. Hope you were sufficiently pampered by your children this morning, if, they, if you have small children who live with you, or that sort of thing. Um, fun fact, well, fact, um, you know, I heard it on Triple M um, on Friday night. They were talking about a survey that was done of Australians. Apparently, the average amount of money that is spent on dads for presents on Father's Day is $51.60. I know what you're thinking. They paid way too much for that box of hankies. Yeah, right? They also pointed out that on Mother's Day, Aussie mums, on average, have more than double that spent on them. See how utterly restrained I'm being? Anyway. Seriously, uh, Father's Day is a really great tradition. Mother's Day is too. I'll talk about that on Mother's Day. But um, God the Father invented fatherhood. It's a really honourable thing to engage in fathering children well and do the hard work that involves. And uh, it's, a really, um, it's a really good day to acknowledge a lot of dads slave away really hard to provide for their family. And a lot of dads have to deal with difficulties in raising their kids that are you know, just above and beyond. Um, so it's, it's worth just labelling that today, I think. And I want to say, dads, um, if that's you... I just want to encourage you that your hard working at your role as a dad is very pleasing in God's sight. It's actually a very honourable institution, fatherhood under God. It's an important part of his creation. The kids are raised well by dads. Um, So keep at it. Get at it better. Go at it hard. Uh, Being a dad's really important. Now, fatherhood can have a lot of stress and suffering involved, but it's worth it because their children are worth it, right? We had a look at a passage here, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's worth opening Keep, uh, keep it open. Uh, oh, sorry. Thank you, Stuart. 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's worth having that open. You've got a Bible near you. Open it up. It's page 1198. In this passage today, the Apostle Paul talks about working hard too and suffering because the work's really hard and it's worth suffering for um, and it's more important than fatherhood. His job was to make sure that people everywhere hear the gospel of Jesus. And that message is so important that it's worth suffering for. And so he writes this letter to his uh, apprentice, Timothy, and says, Timothy, join with me in working hard and suffering to get the message of Jesus out. So turn just back the page to chapter 1, verse 8. It's some invitation. Come and suffer with me, Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 8. It says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony uh, about our Lord or me, his prisoner. Paul's locked up for following Jesus and talking about him. It says, rather join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Turn, turn back to chapter 2 and he says it again. It's, it's really important. It's one of the main things this book's about, this letter to Timothy. Uh, verse 3, it says, uh, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Doesn't seem like a terribly attractive offer, does it? Come and will willingly join in suffering for, uh, with me uh, because of Jesus. Uh, he gives three examples trying to get Timothy to understand why this should be the case, right? Number one's there, the first one's there in verse three. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Friends, be a soldier is single-minded devotion to duty. You don't get to be a person anymore. You're a cog in a machine. You're part of a war machine. And it's directed by a commander, and what the commander wants to happen, happens. That's what it means to be a soldier, as I understand as somebody who's never been a soldier. Uh, Timothy say, uh, Paul's saying, Timothy, the Lord Jesus is your commanding officer. 
be willing to suffer anything, imprisonment, wounds, even death, to see his crucial cause move forward, because that's what soldiers are called to. If the occasion calls for it, be willing to undergo wounds and even death for the cause. The next one, this is not sounding any more pleasant yet, verse 5. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete, so we've got an athlete now, does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. Have you got any idea how hard athletes have to, have to train in order to hope to be in the Olympics, uh, much less winning the gold medal? <laughs> uh, met some people training for that sort of thing, and it's just their entire life consumes everything there. Their entire life, their entire focus is directed towards winning the gold medal. In Paul's day, it was the victor's crown. They've got a crown for winning instead. But their entire purpose, involving suffering and hard work and not involving performance-enhancing drugs, if they wanted it by the rules, an enormous amount of work in order to win the prize. Timothy, look at how athletes train for the Olympics. Accept the cost of hard work and suffering if you want to win according to the rules. Or think about a farmer, verse uh, 6. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. As I understand it, again, I'm not a farmer. Never been a farmer. City slicker. Never done a hard day's work in my life from that perspective. Uh, to be a successful harm, farmer, as I understand it, though, is to be a hard-working farmer. You, you don't get to be a lazy farmer and be a successful farmer. The harvest time does not wait for you. It's ready when it's ready, and you better be ready to work hard to make it happen. Timothy, it's the hard-working farmer, the father willing to undergo suffering in the work, who sees results from his labour. Remember that as you preach Jesus. Now, so you've got these three ideas, right? These three pictures. You've got the soldier, the athlete, the farmer. All of them involve suffering and hard work. But they have another thing in common besides just suffering. I think all three of those jobs in general, the person doing it thinks it's worth suffering for. The cause is worth suffering for. It is worth winning this war. It is worth winning this race. It is worth harvesting these crops. It is worth my suffering to that end. Paul says, Timothy, come suffer with me. What are we suffering for? Have a look at verse 8. Something far more important than any of those examples. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I'm suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word's not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I will go undergo any suffering for the sake of the elect, is what he's saying, uh, that they too may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What's this gospel thing? Well, a gospel is a news announcement, basically. That's what the word gospel means, news, news announcement. It's a public declaration, important message that has to go out to people. So a gospel back in the day, back then, was the emperor's had a baby and he'll be your emperor one day. Like, that's a gospel. That's what they called it. It's a, a, a public announcement. Jesus Christ has conquered death and now he offers eternal life to all people. That's the message. People need that message so they can share in the life he offers. And Paul says, that is so important. That is worth undergoing any, and I mean any, kind of suffering to see that people can hear it. Now, we come across this stuff in the Bible sometimes and I think, wow, that sounds extreme. Can't we just sort of go back to, you know middle class life and forget about that but think about it for a moment it's an absolute no brainer when you just think about it logically isn't it that it is worth undergoing any kind of suffering for that message to go to people who need it just think it through logically it's a no brainer I mean people serve in wars to defend the country they train to win the 100 metre sprint they work for this year's harvest that grabs enormous amounts of people's devotion but Jesus Christ has conquered death he has conquered death in a world where everybody dies What kind of suffering would be too much to undergo 
to see that that message goes to people who need it. Let's change the content of the message, and I think you see the point. Imagine you've discovered a cure for cancer, that horrible, awful disease. It's a really simple cure, and it can be made immediately available to as many people who hear about it and are willing to grab hold of it. How much suffering and difficulty is it worth getting into for that message to go out into our world? Just think about it logically. We'll think the opposite way around. Would it be okay to just sit on it if getting the cure of cancer out there would cause us a great deal of difficulty, strife and danger and irrational opposition from many of our neighbours? Of course it wouldn't. It would just be a dereliction of, uh, of our duty as a human being to bring that message to people. Jesus Christ has conquered death. It's worth undergoing anything that people would hear about him. Let's be refreshingly direct about this. Paul says, Timothy, Jesus Christ offers eternal life. Come and join with me in suffering, whatever it takes. Not suffering for its own sake. Suffering whatever it takes to get that cure for eternal death to people who desperately need it. We talk over here about giving the message of new life. This, this is half of our brochure about our, our vision. Giving the message of new life. That's what it's about. We, from the bottom there, we aim to connect with new people to care for them, show that we're not just trying to Bible mash them immediately, make it actually a relationship in which you, you, you care for them. But we move up, this is where it gets really, really important, communicating to them the cure for eternal death in Jesus and calling them to commit. They can't just go, oh, that's real nice. <laughs> we can't be satisfied with that. We want you to commit to Jesus. Friends, where are your friends with that? <laughs> Because it's, it's relatively easy. Perhaps we've gotten to know our friends, we care for them, we, we get on really well, and we know that if we try and talk about Jesus, the relationship's going to be strained, right? It's going to be hard. Perhaps we need to hear what it says here and hear uh, it's worth undergoing any suffering that they would hear that message. That's challenging, isn't it? But it's true, it's so obvious when we think about it logically. Have a look at verse 8. We're going to talk about this this gospel that Paul has, a bit more detail. This is wonderful. What's the gospel? Uh, Verse 8 is the gospel, (laughs) or it's a a particular way of saying the gospel. Uh, Is that really the whole gospel? Well, yes, it is, and no, it's not at the same time. It's kind of a summary of the whole gospel from a particular perspective. Here's the gospel. Remember Jesus Christ, point one. Raised from the dead, point two. Descended from David, point three. This is my gospel. You go, I know heaps more stuff that the Bible says is the gospel than that. And it just says three things. That's the gospel. Well, yeah, it is the, particular, it is the whole gospel from a particular angle. Let's go through it. Um, Jesus Christ. Who's Jesus Christ? There's a particular guy in history called Jesus, and he's the Christ. What's that mean? He's the king of Israel. He's the king of God's people. The announcement is Jesus is the king of God's people. Okay? Uh, moving forward. Raised from the dead. Jesus died, but now he's alive, never to die again. Death has been defeated in Jesus. Raised from the dead. And then the weird one, descended from David. Why on earth do you say that? Well, actually, that's actually where it all pulls together and, and starts making a great deal more sense. Descended from David. Who's David? Well, David Christ, or David the Messiah, was a king of Israel about a thousand years before Jesus. Uh, he was one of the greats of the kings of Israel. Why is that important? Because God promised him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised him that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever and that one of his descendants would offer salvation to people from all nations from that throne. You're going, how, how could that happen? Kings die and they pass the kingship onto their sons or whichever usurper manages to get power afterwards. Well, Jesus Christ, 
raised from the dead, never to die and hand his kingship to another. This is the gospel. Jesus is the king, the eternal king, promised from David to bless the whole world with salvation, whoever turns to him. Now, it's very, it's very similar in a way to the introduction of the book of Romans. You'll see, you'll see this is what Paul introduces himself in the book of Romans. It pulls some of these things together. Uh, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, King Jesus, what that means, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel, the new public announcement of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his sons. The Old Testament promised it. Who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. He's of the line of David. And through the spirit of holiness, the power of the Holy Spirit, was appointed to be the son of God. Son of God sometimes means just king of Israel. Was appointed to be the king of Israel, the son of God, in power by his resurrection from the dead. This king was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit to eternal life, never to die again, and therefore to never stop being king. The Holy Spirit vitalized Jesus and raised him to eternal life. That's what that, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed to be the son of God. By his resurrection, it's going, this guy's king forever. Never to lose his throne. Now, we've heard about the gospel of Jesus. We've heard about it's so important that it's worth suffering for. Paul wants to turn us now to uh, the assurance that comes from it. And this is absolutely wonderful. Um, although we're not going to understand it straight away. Um, we're going to spend the rest of the sermon kind of trying to explain these three verses from, from verse 11 to 13. Now, you see, he starts at, here's a trustworthy saying. Now, I think the whole Bible's trustworthy, but he really wants to focus our attention on it and say, here's a bit, listen up, it's really important, take it to heart. Let's read it through and try to take it to heart. My goal for you by the end of the sermon is that you'll have a greater sense of assurance in Jesus you never knew before because of what's said here, right? Have a look what it says. It says, here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure... We will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Now, I I imagine a lot of that goes over your head at first reading. It's quite a difficult little bit, isn't it? Like, what on earth half of that mean, basically? Um, Let's go through it and point out the difficulties before we really get into it. First one, if we died with him, we'll also live with him. The second bit's pretty obvious. We will live with him. There's eternal life for Christians in the future in God's kingdom. That's, that's fairly straightforward. What's this if we died with him business? It looks like he's saying um, the only people who have eternal life are people who died with Jesus in 33 AD outside the city of Jerusalem on a cross. And that's exactly what he's saying. The only people who have eternal life are people who died with Jesus in 33 AD outside the gates of Jerusalem on a cross. How's that encouraging? I wasn't born yet. We'll come back to it. It's very important. It's a bit confusing though, isn't it? Verse 12, if we endure, we'll also reign with him. What it's saying is if we continue steadfast in our Christian faith, trusting in Jesus firm to the very end, we'll have a salvation in the end. So one of our values on this side, down the bottom here, uh, enduring, what that's saying is we want to be disciples of Jesus who continue in our uh, faith and obedience to Jesus firm to the day where we enter his kingdom. Because uh, it's only people who get there holding to Christ that get in. Which is what the next bit says, isn't it? If we endure, we'll also reign with him. So we'll we'll get to reign with Jesus in his kingdom. But if we disown him, he'll also disown us. That's the opposite of enduring and that's absolutely terrifying. It's talking about people who give up on owning Jesus as Lord, fall away and perish eternally. Now have a look at um, what's on the screen here. This is what Jesus said when he called disciples to himself. 
He said something very similar. He said, Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Like Paul, he's saying, come and suffer with me for the salvation of other people. That's what he's saying. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. One day Jesus will stand at the gates of his kingdom welcoming his people home. But if we've disowned Jesus, on that day he'll disown us, is the warning. But then he seems to immediately uh, contradict it, doesn't he? Have a look what he says afterwards. And this is where it gets extraordinarily assuring. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Surely there's a difference there between disowning Jesus and being faithless to Jesus. Sometimes it's hard to work out where the line of that is. Disown is uh, give up on Jesus entirely, not own Jesus anymore. That's clear. But we're faithless to Jesus. How faithless to Jesus? Is it just a matter of like all the way up to not saying I don't believe in Jesus anymore? How faithless can we be before he stops being faithful to us and he won't disown himself? Whatever that means. <laughs> but that last line there, if you look at the end of verse 13, is the key. That's the key bit. It says, for Jesus cannot disown himself. Now, some people take that as um, Jesus can't lie. That's obviously true. I believe that. Um, Jesus can't deny his own character of complete truthfulness and, and, and lie about salvation, but that's not what it's about. What this is literally saying is, is what it sounds like. Jesus can't disown Jesus. Be assured. Jesus cannot disown Jesus. Jesus cannot say to Jesus, Jesus, you are no longer welcome in my kingdom anymore out of it forever. Jesus can't say that to himself. He cannot disown himself. That may sound weird, but that is the firmest basis of Christian assurance for eternity. And that's what I want to talk to you for the rest of the sermon about today. Um, There's this idea called union with Christ, which is really prevalent in the Bible. We don't talk about this very often. The early church talk about their salvation like this all the time. I hope we'll integrate it into how we think about a Christian faith more and more. Now, I'll ask you a weird question. Are you in Christ? This, this is what it's about. Are you in Christ? This is, the Apostle Paul uses this phrase about our salvation all the time in his letters. Are you in Christ? We might say, well, I, I trust in Christ. I don't know if I'm in Christ. What's that even mean? He's a guy and he's in heaven and I'm here. And Are you in Christ? If you're a Christian, yes, you are in Christ. Or in other words, you're united to Jesus. And if you're united to Jesus through faith, then be assured... Jesus can't deny himself. You've actually, you're united to Jesus. You're, this is get weird, you're part of Jesus now. And Jesus can't deny himself or any part of himself. That's what it's about. He can't deny himself, disown himself or any part of himself. Now, this is very strange. It's a little alien to our thinking uh, naturally. So we're going to play a game to try and get into it. Here's the game. The game is called Is It Alive? I'm going to put something on screen. You tell me whether it's alive or not, right? There's the thing on the screen. It's a hand. Is it alive? Is the hand alive? If it's attached to a body, depends what sort of body too, doesn't it? See, that's the point. Ask a more pointed question. Does the hand produce its own life and its own vitality? Is it alive? No, obviously not. It's what it's connected to. Now, like, just make sure we get the example. Did anybody um, 
Did anybody get a chainsaw for Father's Day? <laughs> I seriously, did. of course we didn't. It costs more than $51.60. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, just... Just for, the, just for the practical learners, just, I, I need a volunteer this morning, because there's visual learners, and we'll have it on the screen, and I just want to have, like, you know, practical learners, does somebody want to volunteer? Just, just, <laughs> just get a message, I mean, he points out to me, are you really bringing that to church? We better store that somewhere, kids won't get it, or we will have an example of this after church. How about I put it back in the guitar case? Is... Is it alive? Is the hand alive? No, it's not. Depends what it's attached to. It has life and vitality flow into it from the body it's attached to, doesn't it? Life and vitality flows up through it from the body it's attached to, or it's not alive. Its life is derivative from something else. So it has to be attached to life to have life. This is what union with Christ is about, this kind of organic living connection. Now, this this is where it gets a bit funny, because I'll give you another example. Here's Mr. Christian. Is Mr. Christian alive? Just considered it himself. No, he's not. This guy's dead. He's just on his own. He's a mortal human being and he's going to die. His body is enslaved to death. But here's where the gospel comes in. Because when Mr. Christian becomes a Christian, he trusts in Jesus. He learns that Jesus died and rose from the dead in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when he trusts in Jesus, the Spirit of God that brought Jesus back to life, that power extends out from Christ to this man and lives in him too. The same power and vitality that makes Jesus alive flows through Mr. Christian as well. Is he alive? Depends what he's attached to. If he's united to Jesus, if he's a Christian, if he's trusted in Jesus and be united to Christ in the power of the Spirit, he has eternal life. He has the same life, actually, that Jesus has flowing through him, flowing through Mr. Christian as well. Mr. Christian participates in a life that is not his own. Now, this connection between Mr. Christian and Jesus is just as direct and literal as my hand here is living because it's attached to my body. It's just as direct. The blood flows through my arm, goes into my hand and vitalizes it. You're going, well, Jesus is in heaven. He's a long way away. He's separate from me, right? How how does that work? Well, the Holy Spirit is the connection. Three relevant things about the Holy Spirit, all right? When we say the creed, we call the Holy Spirit the Lord, the giver of life. It's a summary of the Spirit's work in the the Bible. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit gives power of life to people, breathes life into them, and raises Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit, secondly, is also the third member of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is, you know, we go over this a bunch of times and get it through our heads. Uh, The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. He's one with the Father and the Son, and that means... To be in the Spirit's presence is to be directly in the Father's presence and the Son's presence as well, because they're one God. Now, that's abstract and difficult, but that's the truth. To be in the Spirit's uh, presence is to be in the presence of the Father and the Son as well. Third thing I want you to know is the Holy Spirit is transcendent. He can be as many places as he likes. His presence isn't, isn't like limited to a location at all. It's like it just, it just, the whole category of location just doesn't apply to the Holy Spirit or to God for that matter. His presence isn't limited to space in any way. So the one spirit can be everywhere or in you or in me, the same spirit, even though we're separate and apart. Now, pull that together. Jesus became a human being and by the Holy Spirit uh, was raised from the dead and the physical human being, Jesus, is now seated in heaven, distant from me and you. 
But we are united to Jesus by his spirit because the Holy Spirit that lives in him extends out and life and vitality from Jesus flows through the spirit into us. The Holy Spirit acts as like the the spiritual lifeblood that unites us to Jesus and means that we participate in the resurrection life of Jesus, like, like in the diagram. And so the Bible can say some absolutely outrageous things about what Christians are like now, even though it obviously isn't true in a sense. Well, here's one we like at New Life Anglican Church. Uh, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is united to Christ, that's what it means, the new creation has come. The old's gone, the new's here. You go, really? Look at me. I'm, I'm in the process of dying, my, uh, like getting fatter, my eyes aren't working as well. The life of the Holy Spirit comes from heaven, from Jesus, and flows through me as well. And you say, well, you're united to Jesus. What's true of him is true of you. The same life is in you if you're a Christian. So you look at the picture again, Mr. Christian's actually marked wrong because he looks like he's still a sinner. He's actually now clean because he's united to Jesus. He's no longer dead in his sins. He lives forever and he can live new life for Jesus now. Now, there's lots of bits of the Bible. I want to put a bit of Bible in front of you because this is in a lot of passages. Here's just one. um, And you see some of these ideas come together. Um, It says to Christians, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, of bodies that just die, um, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, that's by his Spirit, we've just heard the Spirit's in you, um, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Jesus from the, Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. You see, the life of Jesus extends from heaven to his people. And you can know with assurance that you will have as much eternal life as Jesus has because it's the same life. The same life that flows through him flows through us too. Brothers and sisters, if you trust in Jesus, he isn't just the distant Lord of heaven. You are directly united to him by his life-giving spirit and the same power that flows through him extends out and flows through you too because you're united to Christ. I hope that excites you. (laughs) It's amazing. It's extraordinary. And, And incidentally, this is why the resurrection of Jesus is so important. So important that Jesus rose from the dead. See, the resurrection of Jesus wasn't just a proof that Jesus is God. That's not really the way the Bible talks about it. The resurrection of Jesus is where a human being, Jesus, conquers death and wins eternal life. He has eternal life because he earned it. He deserves it and so God gave it to him. And without a resurrection, Jesus is still dead. He doesn't even have eternal life himself and therefore he has no eternal life for us to participate in, uh, for us to be linked to uh, in him. Look at it this way. There's a picture of a tree. Is that one life or 100,000 lives? (laughs) There's lots of leaves there. Are they lots of lives? Think of them as Christians and the tree is Jesus. This is the importance of the resurrection. The life that flows through the tree extends out and gives the leaves life and vitality. And if the tree dies, the tree's dead, if it's never raised, then the leaves die too because they don't have life themselves. They participate in the life of the tree and the tree's dead. They don't have life at all. There's one life there. This is the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is dead, there's no eternal life to be had for anyone. 
Have a look at 1 Corinthians 15 here on the screen. It says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, it's euphemistic, those who have died in Christ, united to Christ, are lost. If for only this life we have hope in Christ, you're not in our union to Christ, we of all people must, um, all people are most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. What's this first fruits business? It's saying what happened to Jesus will follow in our experience in due course. We'll experience the same life, the same resurrection that Jesus experienced too when we, when, when we meet him in his kingdom. Now, just to recap, we've got the big idea because union with Christ is more complicated than that, okay? Uh, I'm not going to do everything today. I want to have one more idea that I want to impress on you this morning so we can appreciate what's going on here. Just to recap, so by our faith in Christ, we're united to Jesus through like this, like a member. The Holy Spirit's power flows from Jesus through us. Um, I hope you, you understand that concept. The same Spirit pumps through us by our union with Jesus. There's actually four ideas you need to talk about union with Christ in the Bible. The other one I want us to understand properly this morning is participation. This is where it gets really funky, <laughs> frankly. Um, and like foreign to our way of thinking. But Jesus' life isn't just his life, it's my life too. Participation in Jesus means that what happened to Jesus happened to me. What happened to Jesus happened to me. This, this comes up again over and over again in the Bible. Jesus' story is my defining story too. So over and over in the Bible you hear this kind of thing. You know, at the cross, when Jesus died, Christian, you died too. Your old self died. It's dead. It died with Jesus. You're united to him. It means your old sinful self is dead. And at the resurrection of Jesus, you were made alive with Jesus because you're united to him. And you have new life in Christ by the Spirit now because Jesus is alive. When Jesus, the eternal um, life-giving man, ascended into heaven and he's in heaven now, it isn't just him and his life up in heaven now because you're united to Jesus. And therefore, there's a real sense in which you ascended into heaven with Jesus really plays with your mind. At the cross, I died with Jesus. At the resurrection, I was made alive with Jesus. At Jesus' ascension into heaven, I was ascended into heaven as well to sit with him at God's right hand where he rules from and to join in that activity. So just one passage here, Colossians 3. Listen to what it says. All these ideas come together. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, Christians. Set your heart on things above where Christ is. We're united with Christ That's a focus of everything about us, our identity and who we are in our life. Uh, He's seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. Really? I'm reading this letter. No, you died with Jesus. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God because Jesus is in heaven. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you see see how it kind of is playing out? What happened to Jesus? Jesus' story is my story too because I'm united to him. Now, it seems a little bit abstract, but it's actually very important to Christian faith, so I hope we'll think about it a bit more. Um, Can you please turn to Romans chapter 6, and I just want us to have a quick run through a passage that you just can't understand unless you have this union with Christ idea, this idea that um, we're united to Christ by his spirit, that the spirit's power extends to us, and we participate in the events of of, of Jesus' ministry, his death, resurrection, and ascension. Have a look at at, at, at Romans 6. We'll just go through it quickly. It's page 1131. 
Big question at the beginning, what should we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Does it matter if Christians sin? Yeah, it matters a great deal. Uh, Should we go on sinning, verse 2? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? At the cross, we died to our sinful way of life. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? When, we, um, when people become Christians and they trust in Jesus for themselves, something we do to, to mark that out in their life is we baptise them. Here's the symbolism of baptism. It's union with Christ. Jesus died and went down into a tomb. He was dead and he came up out of the tomb alive. And so we dunk people underwater and they come up alive. Well, we hope they're still alive. But that's the symbolism. Your old way of life died with Jesus on the cross, Christian, and now you are alive with him and you are to live his way. We were therefore, verse 4, buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Look, they stole the name of our church. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. See what he's saying? If the death of Jesus happened to you, if your old self died, then resurrection is your future. That's what he's saying. Know it. You're united to Jesus. His future is your future. 4 verse 6, our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin, our struggles with sin, might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died, as we died with Christ, has been set free from sin. You can read the rest of the passage and you see the same things going on over and over. Jesus' story is our story. At the cross of Jesus, I died. My old, the old sinful Matthew Payne's over there, he's dead. I have the Holy Spirit now and I am called to live new life in Jesus knowing that my life is hid with him in heaven and when he returns, I will live eternally with him. This is wonderful. Now, just briefly, the other ideas I would talk about with union with, uh, with Christ, the idea of location, that's a map of Jesus' land. You live here in Jesus' land, that's the idea. What comes up with union in Christ a lot is, well, it was in this passage, wasn't it? You live in Je- under the uh, realm of Jesus and obedience to the Spirit rather than to sin. You live in Jesus' land. You live under the realm, in the realm and under the rule of Jesus. And then the picture that my wife really likes, we're incorporated into Jesus' body. And if you can see what that looks like, that's Jesus, big Jesus. Jesus is also kind of the head. He's also kind of the whole body. But remember we are talking about union with Christ and the Holy Spirit's life throw, flows through all of us? We're directly linked to Jesus, and that means by God's Spirit, we're directly linked to each other because there is only one Holy Spirit. And you've all either got the one Holy Spirit or you don't have a Holy Spirit. You've got the one Lord or you don't have the one Lord. And the one Holy Spirit extends his presence to all God's people, uniting us to each other, just the same as we're united to him. And so the, the, the Bible can call the church the body of Christ. The life of Jesus flows to the members of his body, us. It's like we're one whopping great organism vitalized by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the head and he gives orders to the body and Christians are the various members that make up the body. We have different functions to do in the life of the body. And the Spirit of God vitalizes us and gives us gifts and ability and life, new life to live together. I hope you can see how close, how close the relationship between Jesus and his church is. Jesus isn't just over there in heaven. <laughs> He's here in me. He's there in you by his spirit. He's as close as he possibly can be. In fact, he's closer now than he was when he walked around on the earth with his disciples because he dwells in us. Now, 
that just seems like a bunch of information, let me tell you how this should give you more assurance of your faith than you've ever had in your life. A lot of Christians, I think, struggle with assurance because they feel like Jesus is distant from them. Jesus is a saviour, he's outsiders, he's separate from us, he's up there in heaven. We have to relate to him from a distance. And a lot of people just think about their relationship to Jesus in terms of like a legal contract. It's like, okay, I'll give you salvation, people. You just trust me enough, right? Um, And so I just have to do my part of the deal. And so I keep monitoring. Do I have enough faith? Do I know he wants me personally? I mean, it it, it can feel a bit like uh, you're negotiating uh, with a lawyer in another country via a fax machine or something. It's just like, it's not personal. It's not united. It's distant. You're going, does this Jesus who's way up there really like me? Will he really welcome me home? Now, if you think of your salvation in union with Christ terms, it changes the types of questions you ask completely. Here's how union with Christ logic plays out. Here's a couple of questions. I'll replace them with better questions. Friends, what is my standing before God as a Christian? Union with Christ leads me to ask a better question. What is Jesus standing before God? Because I don't have a standing before God of my own anymore. I have Jesus standing with God because his life flows through me. What's Jesus standing before God? We already know. God deemed him worthy of being raised from the dead and gave him eternal life and rule over all things forever. And I participate in that standing before God. What will my eternal future be like? Union with Christ leads me to ask a better question. Well, what's Jesus' future? He will rule all things forever. There isn't anything good in creation that isn't his to enjoy. And I get to participate in that future as well because I don't have a future except Jesus' future, which I join in with. Here's a quick test as to whether you've understood the logic of union with Christ. Really weird passage. We all go, what? What's this about? Do you not know, Paul says, that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, aren't you competent to judge trivial cases? Don't you know that we'll judge angels? And you go, where in the Bible is that about judging angels? I have no idea. What what, what on earth is that about? It's the most obvious thing in the world. This is for Paul one of those adieu kind of points. You're united to Jesus. You participate in everything to do with Jesus. Jesus will judge the world. Jesus will judge his angels. Do you know, if you're united with Christ, that you will judge the world with him, that you will judge his angels with him? See how the logic plays out? Everything about Jesus is true of me. I have every blessing he has to offer. I get to join in. And you do too if you're a Christian. There's the big question at the bottom. Is there any chance that I will be condemned even though I'm a Christian on the final day? Here's a better question that union with Christ leads us to ask. Is there any chance in the world that Jesus will be condemned on the last day? If you are united to Christ by faith, you are as eternally secure as Jesus is. There is now no condemnation for those who are in, united to Christ Jesus. It's a world of difference when you face your life and you stumble in your faith, you don't know what's going on, you're really struggling with your faith. You're going, I'm faithless. I'm not following Jesus well enough. It doesn't make a difference with your standing before God. If you're united to Jesus, you share in his standing, not your own, before God the Father. So let me read that trustworthy saying again, and I hope now you can appreciate it a little more. Here's a trustworthy saying, brothers and sisters. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure... We will also reign with him. If we disown him, he'll also disown us. If we cut ourselves off from Jesus, he'll disown us. But listen to the promise at the end. If we're faithless, if we stumble in our faith, if we sin, he remains faithful because 
can't disown himself. If you're united to Jesus, he can't cut you off. He can't disown you because that would be to disown Jesus. Jesus can't disown Jesus. Isn't that remarkably assuring? (laughs) I hope it is to you. Let me pray for us that we'd uh, be encouraged uh, by the life that Jesus gives us by his spirit and our standing before Jesus because of that. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you so much that the Lord Jesus is not a distant Lord and Saviour. Thank you so much that you raised him from death and gave him eternal life. And thank you so much that we can participate in that life, that we have the life of the Spirit even now flowing through us because Jesus is alive and he's extended the Spirit's presence even to live in us and to teach us to live your way and to teach us to hope for the great day when we'll be raised with him. Thank you so much for Christ. We want to pray that you would help us to have this tremendous truth about union with Christ uh, etched into our hearts and minds so that we would be assured of where we stand before him. And we pray, Father, by your spirit that you would keep us uh, following Jesus all the days of our lives. And when times are hard and we're stumbling and struggling, that we would remember that we share his status, not our own. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.